0: If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We're back in Mark after a two-week absence for uh, Easter as well as the week after Easter when we looked at some of the um, effects and consequences of the resurrection. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Please join me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may Your Word be our rule May your Holy Spirit be our teacher and may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We are now at week 55 of our series, Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. The week before Easter... um, or two weeks before Easter, we looked at an anointing to remember, the first 11 verses of chapter 14. And the week before Easter, it was a meal to remember, verses 12 through 31, where we took a look at three dinnertime conversations. A before-dinner conversation where Jesus predicted his betrayal. A, a dinnertime conversation during which Jesus, at this last supper, presented what's known now as the Lord's Supper. And then an after dinner conversation where Jesus told Peter point blank, you will deny me. Here we are with the passion of Jesus Christ. Passion is Latin for suffering. The suffering of Jesus Christ we will see was multidimensional, mental suffering, physical suffering, and spiritual suffering. Today, we will see Jesus suffered at the hands of His friends. In the coming weeks, we will see Jesus suffered at the hands of His enemies. And finally, we will see Jesus suffered at the hands of His Father. I've got a question for all of us. What has caused you the most sleepless nights? You know those nights where try as hard as you can, you cannot fall asleep, or you wake up and you cannot get back to sleep no matter what. What causes that? What, what is the agony, the anguish, and the inner turmoil that you're facing? What is the distress, worry, fear, anxiety? Was it because of the loss of a car, a house, money? Maybe a job? Now those are all significant losses. And many of us have experienced those kind of losses. But for most of us, the loss that stands out is the loss of a personal relationship. Before Calvary came Gethsemane. Before the cross, there was the crisis It was a moment in which the entire matter of the Savior's calling and purpose was at a crossroads, was being reconsidered. As the agony of His death drew near, the Lord Jesus passed through a crisis of His own, and as we will see, it was a sleepless night for Jesus our approach to the text this morning will be to ask ourselves this question What kind of place is Gethsemane? Has anyone been there? On one level, a surface level, you could say that Gethsemane is the Hebrew name that means olive press, and it's an estate located on the lower slopes. Of the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, about one half mile outside the city walls. But I want us to take a look at Gethsemane, not on a physical or a geographical level, but rather on a personal level. I think we all know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and we all probably know John 10, I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, and we saw in Mark chapter 6, Jesus having compassion on the crowds. He taught them, but he also fed them. He's shepherding the people. In Mark 14, 27, we saw that quote that we heard again, read from Zechariah chapter 13, that strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, as we answer this question, what kind of place is Gethsemane. We'll see seven features of our text that break nicely into two sections. First, the shepherd, that is Jesus, prays and the sheep sleep. And secondly, the shepherd is struck and the sheep scatter. Let's take a look at verses 32 through 42. The shepherd prays and the the sheep sleep. That is going to be tough to say. Verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. What is Gethsemane? First of all, it's a place of prayer. Jesus goes away as He often did to pray. It's the main focus of what we see taking place here. Whereas typically in the first century there's a praying aloud standing, we read and heard that Jesus fell on his face in prayer. Well, what is prayer? It's an expression of our complete inability and our utter dependence. It's a confession of our weakness, frailty, complete dependence on the sovereignty and provision of God. Remember Jesus, the mystery of the incarnation, fully God and fully man. He's not only the Lord of glory, he is the incarnate in the flesh son. This realization, this overwhelming vision before him of what it will cost him to be the servant of the Lord as we saw in our series from Isaiah in Advent. Oswald Chambers, the author of the well-known devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, says this, Prayer does not equip us for greater works. Prayer is the greater work. And here you see Jesus doing this greater work of prayer. Now here's the question for all of us. If Jesus needed to pray to His Father, how much more do you and I Children also of the Father need to pray. I love the Gospel of John because it shows Jesus and His relationship with His Father the clearest. Jesus turns to His Father in prayer. It's not only a place of prayer, but it's a place of isolation. Jesus feels the need for the presence of at least some, at least three of His disciples He would feel the need, the social need of companionship of these men at this hour of trial. Now all three of these, Peter, James, and John, all three of them had bragged about their abilities. And we saw that in chapter 10 and again in uh, 14. You would think that these are the three exactly that Jesus needs. Remember when Jesus chose the twelve, he chose them what? So that they might be with him with him. It's a great definition of a disciple. Yeah, a disciple is a learner, but a disciple is someone with Jesus. He's a man, he's a human being, and he needs human companionship. And as he struggles in prayer, what do his disciples do? They sleep. He becomes isolated. They sleep. He is absolutely and totally alone in the presence of His disciples. Now in a sense, do you see it, that it could only be this way? Jesus alone could bear the sins of men. Jesus alone could bear the wrath of God, the unmitigated anger of God against sin. Jesus is facing this battle completely alone it's a place of prayer it's a place of isolation the garden of gethsemane is a place of battle it's a place of spiritual battle here is heaven and the world together good versus evil for jesus we read those words he himself says i am greatly distressed and troubled my soul is very sorrowful even to death earlier in our class we 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 heard about the emotions Jesus experienced and here is Jesus saying he is sorrowful what a comfort for those of us that sorrow that that's who Jesus is a man of sorrows it's a rare look at Jesus's attitude Remember in chapter 10, 45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Here is Jesus, as it were, being seen from the inside out. The language is strong. He is troubled. It conveys the idea of a man who is far away from home and feels abandoned, longing for companionship, but finding none. Jesus is about to be exposed to the one thing I would say he really fears. Not the cruel death which would end his earthly life. He knew he would rise again. But the indescribable experience of feeling himself to be God forsaken. Martin Luther writes this, no man ever feared death like this man. According to Mark, this is the crisis in Jesus' life. The decision to submit to the Father's will brings Jesus greater internal suffering than his physical crucifixion. Nothing, and I realize it's dangerous to say words like nothing and always and you, you know, all, but nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. None of the Psalms of Lament, as we read the turmoil and the anguish, none of them compares to this struggle of Jesus. For He would become sin, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5. He would become a curse, as we read in Galatians 3. Martin Luther was some... Somewhat exaggerated language is saying that Jesus is becoming, in becoming sin, he's becoming the greatest sinner and he's going to receive the greatest punishment. Look at verses 37. Jesus asks a question, but in verse 38, he gives a command watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He then goes on to say, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And it's not fallen humanity and its depravity, but it's the general weakness and the vulnerability of humanity. One commentator writes this, Jesus came to be with the Father for an an interlude before His betrayal, but He found hell rather than heaven open before Him. And He staggered. But the garden of Gethsemane is also a place of resolve look again at verse 36 not my will but your will here Jesus submits to his father everything in Jesus longs to escape from this terrible experience seen in its own light but everything in Jesus also longs to be obedient to the father Here you see the clear humanity of Jesus, but you also see the strength of His holiness. This plea of Jesus suggests that He is genuinely tempted to forsake the role of the suffering servant. Nevertheless, His will to obey the Father is greater than His will to serve Himself. J.C. Ryle, the great 19th century um, English clergyman, writes this Nothing brings us so much misery on earth as having our own way. I think about, was it, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way? My friends, you don't want to end life with those words on your lips. Jesus is saying, Not my way, but Lord, your way. I trust you. In verse 41, we read, The hour has come. The passion and all that's involved in it has now begun. The hourglass, as it were, has been turned over, and the sand is going to fall down and be emptied. The decision has been made. There's no turning back. The the Rubicon has been crossed. The bridge has been burned. It is enough, Jesus says, rise, let us be going. Enough? Jesus is saying the bill is paid. What had been settled in prayer will be carried out in life and in death. My friends, do you realize... That when you're faced with a big decision, when you're faced with how to respond to something, if it gets settled in prayer, it'll get worked out in life. It may be messy, it may look a little bit different, but if it gets settled in prayer before the Father, it will be worked out in life. Jesus is going to go out to meet His foe in battle. He's no victim. Jesus' life is not going to be taken, but rather He will give His life. Jesus is not some weak, unsure, hippie-like Jesus pictured in so much quote-unquote Christian art, so-called, but He's a man who goes out to not reluctantly meet His enemies, but He goes out as the conquering Son of Man. He's the Lord of, He's the Lord over nature, demons, disease, and of death as we've already seen in Mark. And he will defeat the enemies of sin and death through his own death and resurrection. And so we've seen that as Jesus prays, his disciples, his closest friends on earth sleep. They do not pray either for him as a comfort, nor do they watch and pray for themselves so that they will be prepared to resist temptation. Did you notice that? They didn't pray either to be a comfort to Jesus, nor did they pray to be prepared for what was coming. Let's look now at the next few verses, verses 43 through 52, where we see the shepherd is struck and the sheep are scattered. Verse 43, and immediately... While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Well, here in this section, we see that Gethsemane is a place of betrayal. The plan that was made and recorded earlier in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 14, is now executed. Judas is a man of appalling hypocrisy. He gives a respectful address, rabbi. But then he takes, and I can't quite get the word, a very disrespectful action. He kisses him. With a sign of devotion... He betrays the Lord. Michael Card, a graduate of Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, in his song, Why, wrote these words. Why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? And why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. For Judas, at the end of the day, betraying Christ came more easily to him than confessing his sin. It's not only a place of betrayal, it's a place of abandonment. From emotional abandonment to literal, physical abandonment. Jesus was isolated. Now he will become abandoned. Look with me and let's all get our eyes on verse 50. And they all left him and fled. Boys and girls, some of the writers of the New Testament that we have with us today, they ran, they fled, they all fled. And all is emphatic by its placement at the end of the sentence. It's the wholesale failure of the disciples. It's a failure to build a solid foundation through watching and praying. They had been more conscious of their physical tiredness than of their spiritual frailty. When they realized that Jesus was not going to die in battle as some heroic Messiah, but rather Jesus would be humiliated... On a cross, all of the disciples abandoned him. They deserted him. Verses 51 and 52 are interesting. It's a postscript. There's an unnamed man, and most commentators believe it's Mark himself, who ran away naked goes back to a passage in Amos chapter 2, verse 16, and it says, And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. My friends, that day is appearing. It's on the horizon. This is a place of betrayal and abandonment. And yet it's also a place of fulfillment. Fulfillment? Now remember, Jesus is in complete control. He explains the underlying significance of what is taking place. He's been doing that with his disciples. Now, this is not some kind of psychological fulfillment that every advertisement that comes before our eyes wants us to be fulfilled, especially with their product. No, this is rather scriptural fulfillment. Help me out, children. The Old Testament is promises what? Made. And the New Testament is promises Kept. This is the fulfillment of the scriptures, promises made being kept. Now we often think about promises as always positive and personal. You know, it's all about me. But here, these are promises made and kept that on the outset wouldn't look so positive. And yet, as we see, it's, it's the greatest that the world could ever have. The promise of a Savior. The promise of forgiveness. John Newton in 1779 wrote a hymn that we sing every now and then. Hymn number 95. Though troubles assail us. And here are some of the words. Though troubles assail us and dangers affright. Though friends should all fail us and foes all unite. Yet one thing secures us whatever betide The Scripture assures us the Lord will provide. My friends, that happens with us all the time, right? Friends fail us, foes assail us, but the Lord has promised to provide, and He does. My friends, this happened to Jesus as well. His friends failed Him, His enemies assailed Him, and His Father provided for Him. Now, in what Jesus was about to do, no one would stand with Him. You know, He doesn't have a best man. He doesn't have any groomsmen standing with Him. Truth be told, no one could stand with Him. He would stand alone as Savior because He alone was fit to to bear the judgment of God in our place. For Jesus, it wasn't the betrayal and abandonment by His friends that was the worst prospect of becoming the sin-bearer for His people. It was to be the complete alienation from His Father. Now, just a few words as we conclude. You know, we've read these words, we've listened to these words. I bet most of us have got a picture in our mind of what we see taking place, don't we? I believe there's two things that we should see in the garden. We see, first of all, our unfaithfulness, yours and mine. We sleep and we scatter. We collapse and we run away. We sleep when we should be praying, and we scatter when we should be standing fast. Now, how do we stay awake and pray instead of sleeping? And how do we stand firm and, and run toward instead of running away? Well, my friends, the answer is not found in trying harder to stay awake, it's not found in trying harder to stand firm. The answer is not found in us. Rather, it's found outside of us. It's found in Jesus. Because what we should also see in the garden is not only our unfaithfulness, but Jesus' faithfulness. He prays and He stands firm. You see, the only people who turn to and trust in Jesus are people who recognize and acknowledge that their spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak. Only people who know that they are but a moment away from stumbling can turn to Jesus. Only people who come to the end of themselves are able to cast themselves on the mercy and grace of Jesus. And when, by God's sovereign, enabling grace, we turn to Jesus, what do we find? We find that Jesus remained faithful when His heart was breaking, when the cup was bitter, and when His closest companions were weak. We find that His faithfulness is the source of all our comfort and strength and joy. Let's ask the question again. What kind of place is Gethsemane? It's a garden. And the Bible could be viewed rightly as a tale of two gardens. Because just as rebellion from God in a garden brought death's reign over man from Genesis 3 on, so now submission to God in a garden reverses the pattern of rebellion and sets in motion a sequence of events which defeats death itself. Because the first Adam was tempted and did not stand against the temptation, but fell. The first Adam sinned. But here the second or the last Adam was tempted in every way that we are, as we read in Hebrews. But He did not fall. He did not sin. In just a moment, those who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation are going to partake in the Lord's Supper. And in thinking about the Lord's Supper, one commentator wrote this, Our salvation is so little... Our achievement and so much God's gift to us that we can't even begin to understand how it was achieved or what it required. Now, although there is much that we don't understand when it comes to how our salvation was achieved or what it required of Jesus in order to accomplish, we nonetheless do know a few things. Things captured well in a poem, in a prayer found in the valley of vision. For us and our salvation, we read this, and we can pray this, Christ was all anguish that we might be all joy, cast off that we might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that we might attain heaven's best, stripped that we might be clothed, wounded that we might be healed a thirst that we might drink, tormented that we might be comforted, made a shame that we might inherit glory, entered darkness that we might have eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we really can't comprehend the suffering of Jesus in our place and on our behalf. Father, words escape us and indeed thoughts escape us. How could the Lord of glory do this for us in our place and on our behalf? But, Father, as we see the suffering of Jesus here at the hands of his friends, we recognize that we are so wicked, Father, that Jesus had to die for us. But yet we are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. Oh, Father, help us to, as we often say, that we are to cheer up because we are a lot worse than we think we are. And we're also to cheer up because we're a lot more loved and accepted in Christ than we could ever believe. Father, would you keep the reality of the cross before us? Help us to see that suffering does indeed precede glory. Father, help us to not take our salvation lightly, or trivially, but help us to begin to understand what it cost you that we could be in a right and restored relationship with you through Jesus. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.